We sort of pioneered the approach of looking at open source as components rather than as code. An open source package you pull in is like a piece of software in its own right and it has dependencies of its own. If you as a developer, let's say, only use 10 or 15 libraries, you may actually, under the hood, be using 100 or more just by way of these transitive dependencies. Hey, this is Brian, and you're listening to Jamstack Radio, a bi-weekly series where we discuss the Jamstack, a new way of building websites and apps that are fast, secure, and simple to work with. Jamstack Radio is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. Welcome to another installment of Jamstack Radio. On the line, I've got Rami Sass. Rami, you want to say hi? Hi, and uh, thank you, Brian, for having me here. Yeah, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited to uh, get to know about you and about White Source and sort of how I got started. So do you want to explain a little bit about yourself and sort of how you got here as CEO and co-founder? Sure. It's um, mostly by accident, I think, and uh, by having a lot of uh, very good fortune. This wasn't really much of a planned venture. We didn't think it would get so big when we got started. So uh, we're actually three co-founders, and we know each other from a previous company that was acquired in 2009. And then during the acquisition, we were required to provide a very detailed report of all the open source components that our engineers were using in our development of the software. Obviously, we didn't have such a report, and we actually had no clue what our engineers were using. I was the head of engineering in that company, and we spent a whole month during the most stressful part of the due diligence just doing research and tracking down all of these packages and their what's called transitive dependencies and finding them online and figuring out what their licenses were, and if they had any known issues associated with them. And then by virtue of blind luck, there were no major issues, and the transaction went through, and everyone lived happily ever after. But it was uh, very apparent that there was a big risk associated with this unknown, this huge unknown that you were carrying with you, uh, that developers are just pulling these packages online and pushing them into your own software and then redistributing them to customers. And what year was this? The acquisition was 2009. And then uh, we got back together again in 2011 to start White Source. Okay. So you were all working at, at the same company, working on a feature to discover vulnerabilities and packages. And then like, what's the, the, the difference between 2009 and 2011? What, what brought you back together to work on this? So the, the experience of the acquisition. So the previous company was a completely different company, right? It was around identity management, which is another aspect of security, but completely different uh, angle. But the experience around the acquisition where we all of a sudden found that we had these uh, 250 dependencies, like these are packages, open source packages that our software was dependent on that we had no idea about seemed like a very big gap for any company to carry with it. And there's a lot of associated risk with that, that we managed to uh, avert, but it was just luck and we had zero control over it. Yeah, 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 it makes sense, definitely. But now we're here and you're a well-known 
as far as far the security space when it comes to open source, like you're well known, people are aware of what Y Source is doing. Right. I guess on the website I'm looking, it's the simplest way to secure and manage open source components in your software. So like what is the approach that White Source is taking to sort of figure this out? So really back in 2011, we sort of pioneered the approach of looking at open source as components rather than as a code. Right? So there were some pre-existing tools that were trying to analyze what open source you were using by trying to look at your entire code base and find if there are any snippets of code that look like they could have been copied from open source. But we were the first to come in and try and look at the way that developers were actually using open source, which is by downloading a prepackaged piece of software and then calling it through documented APIs, basically, and then started looking mostly, or initially we were looking at the build phase, which currently is what's called CI/CD more commonly. Yeah. And during build time, analyze the bill of material of all of these packages as they were being compiled or built into your own software. And then once we had this bill of material, we had a very large database on our central service of a lot of metadata uh, that we continuously collect about these packages that we can then enrich the report based off of. And primarily, you know, the main point of interest is whether or not these packages have any known security vulnerabilities. Right, so that was like in the very beginning. This is like a very naive initial implementation of the service. Today, it's much more advanced. Awesome. So I'm curious of like who's the target audience for a tool like this? Like I imagine the way development world works is so many people are using open sources that how to build their projects. So and you mentioned that this is something that comes at build time that you sort of check onto this. Right. So like, is this is it just limited open source or what about like packages that I'm using internally from other repositories or, or projects or tarballs. Right, so you can definitely use the tool to track these, but we will not have any meaningful information about them. Gotcha. Right? But for open source, we have a lot of metadata collected and continuously curate additional information, not just about vulnerabilities, but primarily about vulnerabilities. And we also offer fix recommendations and a whole host of management and prioritization and even automated remediation capabilities around these vulnerabilities. And so you'll get a lot more value around the open source packages. Okay, yeah. So I guess the, the value really of white source is that, that database of open source uh, metadata. Yes, that's like the, in the heart of it. But today we are actually providing much more advanced services. I mentioned one earlier about the ability to automatically remediate vulnerabilities in many cases, not always, but in many cases. And another advanced feature that we have, we call it white source prioritize, is the ability to not only identify the vulnerabilities in the open source package, but also look at your code and see if you are exploitable to those vulnerabilities. Gotcha. Right, which is very significant. And you know, we have many thousands of uh, real, real projects using this technology in production, and what we found is that on average, only 15%, 1.5% of vulnerabilities are exploitable from your code, and the other 85%, they're still there, you're still dependent on that package, but you're just using some other method or some other functionality of that dependency, and you're not, quote-unquote, stepping on the vulnerable method 
And so it's really not applicable to you and you can maybe worry less about it or worry later about that and invest your resources and your time and focus on the 15% that are actually applicable. Yeah, I was just going to add that uh, I'm aware of like uh, partnerships with like some major companies like GitHub. I'm curious if there's also any other partnerships with like security researchers. Like, how are these vulnerabilities being discovered? Or are you sourcing that information from another partner like HackerOne or, or whatnot? So, not directly. We are collecting them from a plethora of publicly available sources. Yeah. So primarily the NVD, the National Vulnerability Database from NIST, is a very large source for vulnerabilities, but there's a long list of other sources as well. Many of them are like more niche, small security advisories around specific programming languages or specific uh, frameworks. And also, you know, GitHub the commits and the comments about security vulnerabilities being discovered or being resolved. Like when someone pushes a commit and says, I fixed this security problem, that's another source for you to know that there was a problem in the previous version. So a lot of our, our listeners on the podcast are developers at companies and you know engineering managers and individuals who are pushing code on a regular basis and maybe are already relying on some public announcements like on Hacker News or on Twitter. How does someone leverage something like Ysource today to start engaging into some of this information. All right, so there are many different ways, but before I touch on that, let me just touch on your point of sort of trying to do that on your own or manually. Yeah. I think the biggest problem there is that it's very difficult just to even understand the full list of the dependencies you really have because each open source package you pull in is like a piece of software in its own right, and it has dependencies of its own. Right? It also depends on other libraries, which they also, in turn, can depend on additional libraries and so on and so forth. So there is like this hidden transitive tree of dependencies spanning from this single library that you brought in to help you achieve some task or fill some functionality that you very likely are not aware of or you know don't actively track. And so if you as a developer, let's say, only use 10 or 15 libraries, you may actually, under the hood, be using 100 or more just by way of these transitive dependencies, bringing them in and pulling them behind the scenes. So I think it's not reasonable for anyone to try and think that they will be able to manage that themselves just by looking at vulnerabilities being disclosed on, on some uh, a source or even if they are very diligent. So having said that, there are a few ways. We have like a freemium kind of offering. We call it the white source bolt. It's available on various uh, sort of marketplaces in the GitHub marketplace, in Azure DevOps and elsewhere. And you can also start small with the white source basic offering and grow from there. And normally, you know, our service covers the entire process and workflow around tracking and managing the open source components. And so our solution is more intended for the entire organization. Right? So it's, it's very easy to set up, but the value is very broad and immediately gives you visibility, control, reporting, policy enforcement capabilities, dashboarding and tracking and so 
I think it's much more oriented towards the organization and, and the broader needs and not just for individuals. Excellent. Yeah, I was just looking at the product page and seeing uh, those focuses uh, for uh, organizations, but also considering that I think we talked a lot about packages, but I'm also want to know more about like how vulnerabilities work with like things like containers because uh, I know now more and more we're pointing to packaged environments uh, as opposed to just packaged code. Does white source also cover something like things that are hosted on Docker Hub or pulled in from uh, all those other places? Yes. So since you brought the uh, topic of packages, let me just make a point here. Yeah. Is that we as a company cover practically all programming languages, over 200 different uh, programming languages, and many of these languages actually don't have proper dependency management capabilities, and many of them do not necessarily distribute their open source as packages. And so we also have the capability of finding open source in sort of loose files, loose source files. Let's say if it's C or C++ or PHP or native JavaScript, then we are still capable of identifying files that were pulled from open source repositories and uh, tagging them as such and identifying their vulnerabilities and all of the other metadata that's associated with them. Having said that, we also have the capability of scanning Docker containers as images, basically, figuring out their content. And we do, we do that as twofold. One, we know what operating system packages have been installed. Uh, if it's Ubuntu or Alpine that had some packages installed uh, right in the operating system, those are also open source. So these open source operating systems have their own known vulnerabilities, which we track and can report on. And then we would look at all of the other packages or files that have been installed inside the image and uh, provide you with all of the information that we've collected about them, including vulnerabilities and everything else. Cool. I want to take a step back to one thing that you mentioned uh, about this uh, open source uh, vulnerability database. And maybe take a step aside from white source and talk more about the security community itself, because I think this is something I don't really spend much time or knowledge in, and I, I do rely on tools like white source to care about this more than like I care about it, but I just don't have the information. So like, I'm I'm concerned for like listeners who are listening and thinking like, you know, I'm just writing a little bit of JavaScript. I have a like you know a marketing site here. Like, how much am I really exposed? Like, how is databases like this being developed in the open, and where are Sort of areas that people can also, outside of white source, know of like security researchers or even potentially just be more informed uh, of security just in general. So, you know, there are many, many sources online and offline. I know there's this uh, corona outbreak right now that stops uh, all local events or any kind of events from happening, but there's a lot of very good, lot of very good meetups and the uh, places you can go and attend. There's a long list of very, very good uh, events, topical events about security. I'll just name RSA and uh, Black Hat as as like these big annual conferences that always have top-notch speakers talk about like the latest trends in these sort of areas and are very informative and educational and serve as like a very, very good source of information and can then point you to if you want to drill deeper into like specific areas of interest. So those are the places that I go to and 
I enjoy very much and uh, use to stay up to date. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Yeah, I even see like there. I'm sure there's like a few newsletters that people can probably subscribe to and uh, keep informed. OWASP uh, is a very good community and has uh, a lot of sources and release news, newspapers and have, I think, even online events now. So definitely a very good community to be a part of. And you said OWASP? OWASP, yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, I appreciate this conversation. And uh, like it's got me intrigued to... Um, start being a little more proactive in security vulnerabilities. Like at the moment, what uh, I take advantage of is the the GitHub, the automatic security notifications. Uh, and the way I understand it is that there's like, a, as you mentioned, the central database that alerts like the user uh, if your NPM package or your Ruby package has like some sort of vulnerability, uh, which is super helpful. And I think it's doing a really good job of raising the bar and awareness. And I think... Uh, I see like white source if you really want to start digging in and being a little more, even more proactive uh, with security on your site. There's a, it's an opportunity to definitely check out. Right. So just as a side note, we power some of these alerts with GitHub. So GitHub is a very good partner of ours and we work with them very closely around security. We uh, really appreciate all the effort they're doing around that, empowering the open source community and providing this information. And we want to also facilitate that and work together with them to bring more awareness and to help engineers make sure they safeguard themselves and their projects against potential breaches. Yeah, and I, I understand you have another, I guess, I don't know if you're integrated or partnered but with, with GitLab as well, which is also good to know that you sort of cover the open source space and making sure that information is it's, it's available to anybody who wants to read it. Right, yes, absolutely, that's correct. We also work with uh, GitLab. Awesome. So Rami, what I do want to do right now is transition us to picks. Uh, so these are jam picks, things that we're quote-unquote jamming on, uh, things that keep us going. We're in very interesting times at the moment where a lot of the world, especially developers, are working from home. Like That was a norm before, but it's even more of a norm today. And uh, So if you don't mind, I'll go first with my picks, and then I'll shoot over to you if you've got anything you're jamming on recently. And the first thing that I'm jamming on right now is the Nintendo Switch. I don't think I've actually given this uh, a proper pick in the past, but I know it's come up a couple times on the podcast. But I've had a Switch for, I guess, roughly over two years now and uh, haven't really dug too much deep in like the, the catalog of games. But because I have so much more free time and I'm not really going outside at the moment, I've been really having a lot of fun with uh, in particular game uh, with me and the family, which is Overcooked 2. Overcooked is like this... It's a game where... Everybody, I think it's up to four or eight players, or if you do like online, the goal is to cook basically. You're, you're chefs and you have to cook orders. And honestly, it kind of feels like a mobile game, but for the most part, it's pretty much on console and, and PCs. And uh, I just highly encourage anybody who's uh, spending a lot more time with their family as of recent to check it out on whatever platform of your choice. I, I mentioned the Switch, but uh, that's not the only platform that's available for it. Honestly, I haven't really done too much else other than play Nintendo and answer emails. So uh, that sort of extends the amount of picks that I have. Rami, do you have anything you're jamming on? Yeah, look, I just have to tell you because it's so funny. Uh, Overcooked 2 is actually one of our favorite games as a family. Nice. We have a Switch at home yeah, and we play it with the kids and we have a great time around it. It's like they love it and it's great fun as, as a family, really. It's, it's one of the greatest. You know, it's uh, it also sort of takes me back to my childhood where I had a like very old version of 
of Nintendo back in the day. And, yeah. You know, we, we play Mario Kart and all of these games, especially now when we are spending a lot of time indoors in the house, the family all together. So it's really funny that you brought that up of all things. Uh, but definitely we we love that game. Yeah, the, the one other thing I'll add too as well is uh, I guess I'll add this as a pick. I've been live streaming with my son. We created like a private YouTube channel. So like it's unlisted videos, unlisted playlist. But we've been sharing them with our, our family and friends just as a way to like, you know, show them what we're, we're doing while hanging inside. Uh, so we've been recording ourselves playing Mario Kart every morning for like 40 minutes. We set like a, a very strict time limit because I don't want to do this. I don't want to play games all day, but I'm more than happy to like experience that with my son because I think now uh, all these younger kids, they're growing up with all these smart devices. Like, uh, I don't know how old you are, but I didn't grow up with a mobile phone or anything like that because they didn't exist. But like now you're able to stream directly from your console to, to YouTube and record that and stuff like that. So I think sort of going through that process of figuring how that works with my son and because he, he watches a lot of YouTube streaming and video games uh, as well. Um, it's been a blast to sort of figure that out as well. So how I recommend people explore that. Right, definitely. If I get a pick, you know, I'm now bicycling to work, which I think is a great alternative to public transportation now that it's not very recommended to, you know, shared closed spaces with, with others. And so it's like a, you know, it's double benefit. Also, you can very safely keep uh, social distancing while also getting some exercise, which we don't really get a lot these days. And so I also would highly recommend anyone that's in a reasonable distance from their workspace to try that out. Yeah, that's an excellent pick. And uh, yeah, if we were, unfortunately, locally, we've shut down all non-essential businesses, so grocery stores and, and bakeries, but we were literally going to pick up a new bike for my son on Monday. But the bike stop is actually closed at this point. So we look forward to the day where we could buy a new bike for my son and we could actually get back outside and doing that. But until now, I will live my dreams through you, Rami. <laughs> okay, I'll take some pictures and send you. Excellent, I look forward to that on, on Twitter. Sure. Yeah, so Rami, thanks for sharing your pick and sharing more about white source and security and sort of how people can actively engage uh, and be more informed on things like vulnerabilities. And uh, listeners, keep spreading the jam. That's all the time we have for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. 